Okay, hello everybody. Uh, episode 20 of Thelma and Tom Look Left. 20 episodes. It's unbelievable. I'm so pleased to have got this far. Uh, it doesn't seem that long ago when I emailed Thelma and said, how do you fancy doing a podcast? But anyway, here we are, episode 20. So, yeah. Hello, Thelma. How are you? I hope you're well. I'm really good, thank you. And I can't believe we're on episode 20 either, Tom. The time has has absolutely flown. But um, but um, I, I don't know today whether um, I should be tugging my forelock or doing a bow or something, Tom, because I, I watched Who Do You Think You Are last night with your Josh. And um, and I now find out that, that you have links to the monarchy. I, I, um, I your you. ancestry Thelma, I goes back to, to Henry VIII and <laughs> and to Mary Boleyn. And I couldn't believe it. I was gobsmacked. I felt I, 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 as, as it was all coming through and I was thinking this could well be the end of the podcast. I'm not sure Thelma's going to be han- able to handle working with royalty. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I knew something was going on because they clearly... Uh, work overexcited about it, um, but uh, yeah, I, I yeah, it was fun. I, and I thought some of that program was absolutely lovely. I mean, when Josh was in uh, Westminster Abbey, I don't know whether they rehearsed that or not, but it was very good. Um, there was a oh, good. Atmosphere. You could see on his face, you could see on Josh's face that awe and wonder, and yeah. and then you know when he when he found um, the the actual um, plaque. Um, and that connection um, going so far back, but the links in the family to to the Tudors and and to the Boleyns um, was just incredible. Really, um, are, are you going to look into it and dig a bit deeper, Tom? I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. it's gobsmacking enough without yeah. that. But yeah, I think well, one of the thing, one of the really nice things about that program is that when when they ask you if you'd like to be on it they in return they give you all the research that they've done for your own personal to keep so on my wife's side and my side all of that family history gets passed to us which I think is absolutely lovely um because oh it's so wonderful for your children Tom isn't it so wonderful for all your children not just Josh I mean obviously brilliant for Josh but but all your children and to have that yeah, um, and 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 for grandchildren as well to to as I say dig deeper and find out more. Um, just a wonderful program, and and what a wonderful history. And yeah. I've got to say though, Thelma, a lot of people have pointed out to me, and I kind of knew this already that you go back that far, and most of us are related to somebody you know pretty um, well known. <laughs> I think I think I think most of my uh, ancestors just worked in mills and uh, yeah, <laughs> on the husband's yeah. side, <laughs> dug canals. I think that's most of my background, but uh, but still interesting and and still great to find out um, your heritage and uh, connections and uh, how how amazing Tom, how amazing. Has anybody called you a champagne socialist yet? Oh my god! I, well, I used to get that anyway beforehand because of where <laughs> I live, uh, but. <laughs> Yes, oh, you do. You do get it. I, I get a bit cross with it, really, Thelma. I, I mean, for me, socialism is not a, something about how rich or poor you are. It's how it comes from the heart. Uh, you've only got to think of well, um, Tony Benn for a start, and and I mean, Jeremy himself was middle class, wasn't it? Isn't he? You know, yes. 
It's nothing to do with that. Yes. And, and if you go way back to, if you look at Engels, um, you know, who wrote The Condition of the Working Class, and you look yeah. at his family background from yeah. a very wealthy background, um, it's about your personal heart and soul and values, isn't it? Yeah. And the change you yeah. want to bring yeah. about, that's what's important. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I was, someone was talking to me this morning about it and having a little go at me. And I just thought, you know, what socialism is, it's about realising that we're all part of one thing. We're not all separate. Yeah. We're part of the whole right. creation, really. And, and and it's in our interest that the whole thing does well. And, and that's, you know, that's, right. that's what it is. And, and so in a way, that yeah. programme's helped me in a way to to put all that into perspective. It's quite hard to defend yourself yeah. against this champagne socialist thing. But um, Ah, no. I, I think it's a, a you know, you 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 be the change you want to see and uh yeah. and, and we can all make a contribution to a fairer, more equal world, can't we? And I think yeah. that's uh, shared. Uh, you know, I know purpose. from yeah, Thelma, you're right. And I know from when I was a child, even when I first started glimpsing what was going on. You know, you can feel other people's pain. You can feel other people's needs. And, and that's nothing to do with anything apart from what's inside of you and, and what kind of person you are. And I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm like that. And, and that's, what's, that's why I like socialists, really, because they're empathetic and they feel, they feel for everybody. That's right. It's common humanity, isn't it? Yeah. And um, unfortunately, there are still a lot of people who have that and share that. And um, and that's what keeps us going. Um, but sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, when you see what um, what what what's happening uh, with government and Westminster. But uh, but I think, uh, uh, yeah, we have those shared values and goals and uh, and, and we continue the struggle, as we call it. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. Um, so we, anyway, it's been a, it's been a good, uh, as always, quite a busy time in the world of politics. Uh, a couple of things stand out this week that we want we've wanted to talk about. Um, the first one, uh, well, I mean, this is absolutely mind blowing. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm a big fan of Chris Packham. I I really like him as a bloke. He's lovely and and uh, and I love everything he stands for. Uh, and I love the way he operates, you know, with a total honesty and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, he, he I, I don't want to get involved in his thing about um, Asperger's and what, because I don't really understand that much. But, he, you know, that aside, it's just a, a really nice, clean operator that has got a job and he goes about it in a very professional way, as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, this week, amazingly, Someone parked a car outside his front gates and set fire to it, and it exploded and burnt the gates down. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. I was shocked. I mean, it must be so scary. Uh, yeah, well, terrifying. I mean, the thing that comes through to me with Chris Packham is his absolute authenticity, um, and that, along with um, his ability to articulate all the key issues. Um, that he he believes in so passionately, um, and um, the way he did he did a vlog um, following this this attack, um, and oh gosh, it made me go cold when he was talking about well, what are we to expect next? Because he has a, a stepdaughter and 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 his his partner um, living in the house, so what are we to expect next? And death threats, etc. And 
um, you know, murdered animals pinned to his um, gay previously and all, all of these horrible things that have happened to him. But he's so strong. Yeah. Um, and he, as I say, so articulate at, at just communicating how he's feeling and, and the strength and passion of, of the campaigning that he does. Um, and um, I just admire him so much. Um, and, and his latest work with groups of youngsters on the on the royal family to wild um, their lands. Uh, I don't know who it was that made this attack, but um, it's very serious um, and very scary. Um, but I just I just feel for him because he's a, a good man with good intentions. Um, but I also think he's a really brave man. Yeah. Totally agree. I mean, there's some interesting stuff comes out of it. I mean, in a way, it backfires on those guys because it gives gives the hit Chris loads of publicity and and gets his cause out there. And you get you get statistics coming up like this one. And this only came out because of that petition, which was thrust into the headlights really by this attack. That the royal family, right? They own 1.4 percent of the land surface of this country. And they have less tree, average tree cover on that 1.4% than, than the entire country. And that's because they keep a lot of it for grouse moors and deer stalking. And you just think, you know, Chris's petition is to get this land rewilded. And now, hopefully, loads more people know all about it because of these people, these horribly aggressive people that are trying to scare Chris away. And he won't give up. And he just openly said, you, people just need to understand that I can't. This is what I do, and I'm not going to stop. And uh, yeah, hats off to Chris for that. Lovely, lovely, lovely yeah. bloke. I, I I agree. I agree. I mean, I think you know, thinking about what the royal family own. I was I was reading that the Queen even owns some of the seabed. You know where they're going to place the new wind turbines. <laughs> so so even parts of the seabed as well. It's just incredible, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be good if the royal family stepped up and um, and they, the, you know, Prince Charles in particular has always talked, you know, about his care for for the planet, etc., uh, and concerns about climate change. But it, it would see it would be good to see the royal family change their lifestyle somewhat um, and consider a petition like um, Chris Packham's as well, yeah. um, and and be the role model that we need to have, especially with uh, COP26 coming up shortly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and the royal family, I mean, we've all been watching The Crown, or most of us, and, uh, you know, I, I, I get to see they're, they're just people, and I know they are, and they have their trials and tribulations, but it's difficult not to think of them as sometimes as being a little bit greedy. I mean, how much do they actually need, and do they really need to own a bit of the seabed and... You know, there are people in this country that own nothing and it just doesn't, I, I don't know. If, if they really have to own all that stuff, surely the least they could do is look after it in a way that's beneficial for everybody. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sure everybody gets where we stand on the royal family anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think, as I say, that it, it, they, they should be stepping up now, not just... You know, I saw a programme um, last night with Prince William fronting it um, about a particular project linked to the environment and COP26. And that's all well and good, but we need to see them on a personal level changing their lifestyles. 
Um, yeah. And 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 as you say, how how much do people actually need? And uh, you know, when you think of what's happening to so many people in our country at the moment with job insecurity and um, the, the removal of the boost to universal credit, uh, you know, it does it does seem that the inequality, um, especially post uh, COVID. Uh, and because of the pandemic has been exposed even more. And I think it exposes what some have and what many have not. And I think that a socialist, that can't sit comfortably with either of us, Tom, can it? No, no, quite right, Thelma, quite right. Yeah, so anyway, the, the next thing we, we were going to talk about is, is football. And, uh, you know, I was really, really... <laughs> uh, I don't know, Thelma, what, what your views are on VAR, but... Um, uh, I know you've got strong views on, um, you know, who owns British football or English football clubs. And, of course, Newcastle United been bought by Saudi Arabia. I, I, I mean, I don't know an awful lot about football. Um, I mean, I used to watch it with my dad when I was as a little girl and uh, and that now and again when there's a, you know, a... a uh, a different uh, cup um, Premier League match on or whatever, I get involved, you know, um, and and do watch and enjoy it. Um, but this, I was my attention was drawn to this in particular, um, and, and and I think it's a difficult one because you could see the fans, the Newcastle fans, really celebrating because they wanted rid of Mike Ashley for you know the Sports Direct guy who owned it previously because they've really disliked him and the way he's run things. Um, so they, they were relieved about that. And for many of the fans who are not into the politics of it, it's their club, it's their community. Um, and I think some people were blaming the fans for celebrating at the end of the Mike Ashley reign. And I think, I think that maybe is not my concern, really. M- my concern, really, is a regime with, you know, a human rights record like Saudi Arabia, plus my real concern as well with Saudi Arabia is that we're still funding arms or supplying arms, rather, uh, to them and um, in, in the war on Yemen. And that's resulted in famine and... Uh, you know, many thousands of children and people being uh, killed um, as a result of that. And I think of the G7, the UK is the only country to still be supplying arms to Saudi Arabia. But I'm reminded of, of the Labour manifesto that was about the fans having a share uh, in, in in their football clubs and their local community at football um, and and the richest clubs subsidising, um, uh, you know, the smaller clubs. Um, and, and there were such good, good plans in that manifesto. And when I see this, oh, it kind of makes my blood boil on lots of levels, really. Um, you know, the, the way the fans are treated um, and this idea of the super rich, um, uh, taking control of of a local working well a working class sport that is part of the the working class community and and um, I, I and you know and what's happened with Saudi Arabia um, I you know I just feel is is just plain wrong really so yeah I, I, I do feel quite aggrieved about it. Yeah, totally understand. You know, and also, uh, I, I get I get the fans' point of view that, that Mike Ashley was terrible, 
Um, so yeah, fair enough. Uh, and also, it's it's just nice to have a football club that's not always struggling. But you know, my I I, I support Plymouth Argyle, and when we had a chairman that I didn't like, I really struggled to support them. And uh, it was a real problem for me. And it was such a relief when we finally managed to move on from that. Um, but, uh, you know, someone like, uh, I mean, let's say at Manchester United, they've got the Glazers there. They're not very ethically sound. They're really just using the club as a cash cow. And the supporters are always having to say, well, I'm a Man U supporter, but I don't support the people who own the club. And it's a really difficult thing to get mm. caught up in. And, yeah, I, th- I'd, I don't know how you solve these things, really. I, I, my problem is I love good football. I love watching good football. And the Premier League has definitely come up with some amazing football. Um, I, I held out against the Premier League for a long time because it was, you know, all on Sky and Rupert Murdoch owned Sky. Then uh, it got Sky got taken over by Comcast and I just thought this is my chance and I just signed up and dived in, you know, I'm... I'm up to my neck in the Premier League now uh, in terms of watching and sporting. But it is a real issue. And I, I'm so glad that the Premier Club, Premier League club that I support, the owner of that club is, you know, semi-okay, really, uh, as far as I can make out. I would be absolutely gutted if my club got taken over by, a, you know, some awful... I mean, you know, Chelsea are owned by Abramovich and... Uh, um, and Man City owned by Sheikh Mansour of Abu Dhabi oil money. You know, it's, it's all horrible, corrupt stuff, really. Uh, but it provides good football, and so yeah. it is a difficult yeah. one. Well, the hopefully. fans should just have so much more say. Yeah. Yeah, the fans should have so much more say in the running of their local clubs. That's what I believe. Um, and uh, I think we've moved in the wrong direction, Um uh, I, I truly do believe that, but certainly I'm not happy about what's happened at Newcastle. Yeah. Okay, so there you are. Uh, and uh, That's the end of part one. We've got a guest coming up in part two. Really looking forward to that. Uh, we'll be back very shortly. Welcome to part two of Thelma and Tom Left, and uh, this week's special guest is Hilary Wainwright, uh, lifelong socialist and co-editor of Red Pepper magazine, which I think has been going an awful long time. Uh, I, I, I'm going to be straight up honest here. I've only ever read one article out of the magazine, and that was because it was about comedy, uh, uh, which obviously my son's involved in, so I, I always read stuff about that, um, and it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I know Thelma wrote an article for Red Pepper too, so I do have some small amount of knowledge about it, but I, I've never actually got hold of a copy as yet. I must do so. Anyway, Hilary, welcome. Your address and I'll send you one. Oh, thank you. That's brilliant. Yeah, so lovely to have you with us, Hilary, and a real, real, real pleasure. So I'll, I'll, I know you and Thelma know each other quite well, so I'll let Thelma take over for a bit and we'll see where what happens. Yeah. Hi, Hilary. It's great to see you. And um, it was um, a pleasure to see you and the Red Pepper team recently in Brighton at the World Transformed. Um, it's it's nice to to meet face to face. I know that we've had lots of conversations yeah, over no, the past I, few I months. I knew you because of all the communications. 
And uh, that's right. That's right. And and you were so patient. You were so patient with me because you gave me the editorial support um, with the essay that uh, was in the latest edition. And uh, and so we were in conversation quite a bit and you you were very, very patient and supportive. So so thank you. I learned a lot. So it wasn't altruism. Yeah, yeah, but it was great and great to meet your team um, for Red Pepper as well. Um, but but we've you and I have not just got a link um, with Red Pepper. Um, your dad um, was MP, Liberal MP, I should say, for Combe Valley in West Yorkshire, where of course I was MP just for two and a half years, uh, seventeen to nineteen. Um, uh, Richard Wainwright. Um, so we have that that link with the with the Combe Valley. Um, and, and your dad was actually an MP for, 90, I've got here, 1966 to 70, and then 74 to 87, so quite a long period of time, actually. Um, I moved to the Combe Valley in uh, 1990, so just, just missed him as the MP. Um, but he, he was a Liberal MP, and yet your politics are radical left. So how did that happen? Well, I mean, just one little side, uh, by the way, that your husband, Rob, came up to me at the um, social and said that he'd he'd met Dad. Um, I think Dad had gone to his school and talked to him about politics, talked to the school. Cone Valley High, yeah. And, sort of, and I think it, Rob implied that maybe he'd helped to, to stimulate him into being involved in politics, but maybe that was through argument and... and <laughs> And that probably was the case with me, because obviously we were a very political household. We would discuss a lot. We would he would watch the news absolutely every day, Sunday, Saturday, the whole weekend. So you know, in a way, public politics, public life was part of our life. There was a sort of seamlessness. And um, but when I and so initially I was a young liberal. I joined the young liberals. So when Tom says a lifelong socialist, maybe I was because I was always a rebel and I was always collaborative and I always believed in equality. Um, but that led me to the young liberals who in 1967, I think it would be when I first or 66, when I first got involved, were very um, radical. They were like uh, seeing both Wilson and um i suppose who would it be um it, it would be maybe sir alec douglas hume or you know macmillan i don't know but the tories it was like which twin is the tory it was like the establishment was both labor and the tories and the young liberals particularly with the leadership of joe grimmond at that time they wanted the liberal party to be anti-establishment and they, I mean, they had no illusions in the in the Liberal Party. Well, maybe they did actually, but they they were more radical than the um, leadership of the Liberal Party. They were wanting to get rid of NATO. They believed they were sort of anarcho syndicalists. Really, they believed in workers' control. They were, I'd say, and probably they would define themselves as libertarian socialists. So I, I remember I, how it happened. I mean, I don't want to be long and boring and personal. But no, I, no, please I, do, please do. In, in between um, school and university, I suppose through pure nepotism, Dad got me a, a sort of student, you know, just like helping out job at Liberal Party headquarters 
filing, this sounds so exciting, filing local government information cards, like what councils had won what, where, you know, because local government was a big thing. Anyway, as I was getting more and more sleepy and bored, um, the Young Liberal Office, led then by a wonderful guy, Tony Bunyan, who went on to found State Watch, a kind of, you know, democratic monitoring of the police and the state. He he somehow came to my rescue and he took me out to, you know, a sort of um, sandwich luncheon and, and told me about the Young Liberals and said, why don't you join? So that was like, and explained their ideas. And so I was an immediate convert. And then when I got to university, joined the Liberal Club, and there was a little group called the Liberal Policy Group. But meanwhile, you know, there was a very radical Labour Club, and I gravitated towards them and their, their activists. And I thought, well, what shall I do? I don't really feel I'm at home in the Liberal Club. They were rather pompous, and they all, it was Oxford, so they all... They all related to the Oxford Union, which, uh, you know, though initially I thought, because I, I was quite politically ambitious, you could say, in, in traditional terms. So I, I participated in that for the first term. But I just found them so boring and so pompous. And often, I don't know about you, Thelma, but your politics are shaped by the people that you're attracted to. And I was not mm. attracted to them, but I was attracted <laughs> more radical Labour Party people. So there was another young liberal radical uh, in the Liberal Club. And we, so we, through various devious means, turned the liberal policy subgroup into a group called the Radical Group. And then we, or Radical Policy Group, and then we sort of deftly negotiated a kind of merger with the, with the Labour Club to form Oxford Revolutionary Socialist Students <laughs> And then this was like, this was building up to May 68. And so we then became part of the sort of student movement, radical student movement, which in Oxford was quite closely related to the workers because, you know, one of the things that sparked us off was when um, members of IS, as it was then, the SWP, were leafleting workers in Cowley, the British Leyland car factory, mm. just outside Oxford. And the university disciplinary people called proctors, who were like sort of peculiar people that wandered around in robes, sort of colouring students who were drunk and disorderly. But they also, <laughs> um, they also dictated that these students giving out leaflets were bringing the university into disrepute. And so they sent them all letters of suspension. So we we invaded their offices and we said, you know, we're all, we, I think, no, no, first we all went to leaflet the workers in, in Cowley. So the poor workers in Cowley at like 6.30 in the morning, they were invaded by all these sort of, I remember I was on, a, I had a little motor scooter and I took a friend and we were like dressed in sort of, you know, like red stockings and sort of jumble sale fur coats. And there we were giving out leaflets to work. In a way, it was a sort of radicalising experience because I just thought it is absolutely humane, uh, inhumane that, that people should be having to work at 6.30 in the morning in the dark. You know, it was, it was the dark. We were giving out these leaflets. And we were going to obviously just you know, ride back to Oxford and have a nice breakfast in the marketplace. And uh, I just thought this was absolutely outrageous. Anyway, we all got letters of suspension. So we all 
invaded the disciplinary office. And um, and meanwhile, you know, Danny Kern Bendit and, and so on were on the streets of Paris. So we 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 were a bit pretentious and we identified with that international movement. And so that really was a sort of unstoppable momentum towards becoming a socialist. And then we would do a critique. We were all doing, most of us were doing politics, philosophy and economics, you know, um, and were politically active people. So we did a critique of that course, which was very technocratic and training you to be a sort of member of the political elite. And so we we did a thoroughgoing critique of everything in Oxford. And um, and I suppose by then I, I had nothing, no desire to be part of the Labour Party, which just seemed to be part of the establishment. And I became a kind of a radical socialist, more interested in, in social movements than in party politics. I got very involved in the in supporting the demonstrations against the war in Vietnam and so on. So that was my... Oh, what my, what my a wonderful story, story Hilary. What well, an amazing story. That, it reminds me, we've had Melissa Ben on. Oh, yes. You must listen to that episode if you haven't already. Yeah, well, she she talked about home life in the Ben household when, you know, Caroline and mum and obviously Tony and, and how how busy they were and how how her dad would come back from Parliament late at night and start talking about a bill and she just wanted to go to bed. And it, she was really <laughs> funny about it, you know, but but I think I'm so interested in, in you know, what it's like, you know, for you and 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 hearing what you've got to say about growing up in a political household. And, and that story of that transition from liberal, you know, to to real radical left, I think is just amazing. That that's a wond- wonderful story. And, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's not. I'm not unusual. I don't think. Mm, oh, I, don't, I mean, I, I think being active. 68 and onwards and and it must must have been absolutely amazing um and you're still so active now that's that's what i'm so impressed by you've not lost that fire hillary kind of uh yeah <laughs> well tom and i were saying you don't lose socialism and it doesn't matter about your background if your heart's if your heart's right we continue with the struggle um yeah tom do you, you've got a question i know yeah, i think me. that's so, so lovely to hear uh um hillary i, I i'm not going to tell everybody how old you are but we are the same age uh near climate and uh, i in 1968 i had um my first encounters with the communist party and um that that was fascinating for me as well because i i was by that time i was a full-on hippie i was i i dropped out of the education system because basically i wasn't up to up to it and um yeah so i could really relate to everything you were saying there about the the revolutions in paris and what we used to have our the hippie uh subculture used to have its own um newspapers and magazines and it was always full of what was going on across the world. And we genuinely, at that time, we genuinely felt that we had something going um, for a few years there, or I felt. Um, I've strayed off the topic a little bit, but I just wondered how you felt about that, whether you felt that at the time, that yes, we were going to actually do something that possibly had never happened in the UK before. Of course, it it didn't happen, but anyway, what did you... Yeah, no, no, exactly. No, I did. I mean, I had no sense... You know, the idea, I remember my the principal of my college sort of called me in, you know, to ask me 
um, what I wanted to, what my my sort of plans were post um, Oxford. And I, I, I said, I was, I realised I couldn't say this to her, but I realised that I absolutely had no idea. I'd not thought about since becoming involved in 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 the sort of revolutionary or social movements. I I just had no sense of a career because I thought society would be completely different. So I I had no sense that these these institutions around us were like things that were going to be permanent and one had to kind of think how to climb them, how to, you know, um uh under well undermine them, yes. But you know, I, I didn't have an institution a sense of an institutional future. So I I was a bit blank when she asked me. I kind of said, "Well, I'd probably stay on and do a postgraduate degree." You know, I mean, I didn't have any idea of a sort of career. So that was. So I did think of change as being absolutely on the cards. I mean, I don't know quite when I realised. I think I suppose when I um, got my first job in Durham, that was in 1974. Then I realised you know, how strong the institutions were and and how we needed to think strategically and think about where our power was to change them. So that move from, and I, I mean, I, I was a sort of hippie. I mean, I wasn't quite a hippie. I would relate to the hippies culturally, but I remember going to Berkeley in the US and I suppose as a socialist, I was a bit shocked by how how commercial I mean, naturally, looking back, it wasn't really commercial in a bad, big sense, though it was vulnerable to takeover. But I remember Telegraph Avenue, which was like the big avenue um, leading up to the university. It was full of all these hippie shops. And I mean, okay, hippies need to live. Um, But I remember maybe I was a bit moralistic. I inherited that from my dad's Methodism, maybe, and, and, um, and felt this was a bit not quite right. Um, and maybe that was a bit of an intuition because it's undoubtedly true that 68 had two dynamics in it. One produced people like me and and Melissa, well, Melissa's a bit a bit younger, but Tariq Ali, you know, the left, Sheila Robotham. But it also produced Richard Branson, you know, and the sort of commercial um, innovation. So, you know, 68 had an ambiguity about it. That was that was both nurturing a new capitalism, and also nurturing a new socialism. Yeah. I mean, we were we were naively optimistic at the time, um, and uh, you know, like you, I thought, well, yeah, we. I never worried about the future much anyway, but I just assumed I was life was going to be much, much different. And, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about all these crazy things that they were trying to get us to worry about when we were in school. Uh, and in actual fact, early 70s, it all did kind of come crashing down a bit for the hippies. And uh, we did have a bit of a reality check. Uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Lovely to talk about the past like that. I, I, I could, well, you know, I could spend hours talking about that time and nostalgia and all that. But um, yeah, Hillary, it's, uh, I was wondering about um, uh, how you feel. I mean, that's uh, obviously a huge amount of stuff's happened since then. And you, 
you've been outside of mainstream politics in a, in a way, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, um, up until recently, you got back into it, which I think was the same for a lot of people. I just wondered how you felt now about the situation on the left in the UK. Uh, I mean, just to correct you on one thing, I suppose I I, um, I did get involved in the GLC with, in 1982. Of course you did, so yeah, of course. That, that was, I wouldn't, I'm not sure it was main, well, lots of people, Neil Kinnock particularly, wouldn't call it mainstream, but I, I thought of it as, as mainstream in a sense, as important and should have been, you know, much more important in terms of Labour policy. But in terms of the left now, well, obviously, like, Selma, and maybe like you, Tom, but I was very disappointed by by 2019. I mean, obviously, by the time the election happened and one had been canvassing and so on, I um, it wasn't a complete surprise. But um, you know, I, I was I was very shocked. Not shocked. I was very despondent for a period. But um, now, I mean, I I in terms of my mood and my analysis, I mean, I. I can't, you know, I don't know, like Thelma said, I, you know, once you're a socialist, you, you don't, you don't give up. I mean, and there's so much to act about. I mean, in, in Hackney, where I live, there's Homerton Hospital, which has been, you know, constantly under pressure of privatisation. So I've just, you know, been involved with fellow, fellow activists, often in the Labour Party, but, but we were doing this more out of just support for workers who were particularly cleaners who'd been outsourced and who were on terrible terms and conditions. So involved in local struggles like that. And then also through Red Pepper, I suppose, I'm, you know, uh, there's no time to be despondent because one's covering struggles and movements throughout the world. And you can see hope, you know, in many different places. And, you know, for me, where there's resistance, there's hope because when people resist, they are envisaging something could be different. So they're envisaging a kind of alternative. So um, I recently I went to the World Transformed in Brighton, which was parallel to the Labour Party conference, but for the first time for a long time, I didn't, I didn't make any effort to you know, um, get a ticket to the Labour Party conference because I didn't see much point. And... Um, but the World Transformed was really encouraging. I mean, 2,000 people had registered, near that number turned up. I mean, it was a little bit um, Spartan conditions. It, were, it, it was intense in the cold. But still, it was lively and it was full of ideas and thoughtful and not. I mean, the interesting thing for me is that it was not oriented to the inner struggle inside the Labour Party. I mean, it discussed the Labour Party, it discussed whether to be in or out all those questions of tactics and strategy. But its its main locus was what can be done, you know, in society. How, how I mean, there was discussion of particular cases like the fight for a community against private developers in London, the Latin, the Latin village, um, but many others, many other examples like that. So many, many discussion of, discussions of struggle of, you know, for example, the whole, outrage of, of international inequality as far as vaccines is concerned and the campaign uh, being developed around that sort of people's vaccine. So a lot of international and, and, and UK-based discussions, discussions including, which will interest Thelma, 
on, or she was there, I think, on um, yeah, it was yeah, it was on the breakup of the UK. So you know, discussions about Wales um, in particular, but maybe Thelma's got more. But I didn't know about you, Thelma. But I found it really encouraging, and so I know that out there, a lot of the people inspired by Corbyn and who who are already very radical and and very active, and who for whom Corbyn was like a a magnet within the political system. Those people have not gone away with his defeat within the political system, but are engaging in struggles and thinking strategically about how, what the lessons are, and how we mount a, a, a new kind of strategy, which isn't necessarily repeating the effort to change the Labour Party. I mean, I personally, I'm still in there, but mainly um, to support my comrades in Hackney with whom I'm engaged in many local struggles. And I, as long as it doesn't involve me in too much time in inner party battles, I'm happy to go and vote for them, you know, in, in, in party meetings and vote for their resolutions. But it's not my priority. You know, I very mm -hmm. much support John McDonnell in his work on policy. But at the same time, I do think that, that change can only come through through actually, you know, the, the, the transformation and breakup of the British state, and I could go on about that, but maybe. Well, you know, I could, you know, I could too, Hillary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just from my essay um, in Red Pepper, and and I agree with you. The world transformed. Um, it was the first time I hadn't gone to the main conference for Labour, um, well, for many, many years. And it was quite sad for me, that aspect of it. Um, but the world transformed, I actually found really uplifting. Um, because as you say, Hilary, those people who um, were inspired and motivated by those democratic socialist policies in the 17 and 19 manifesto, and of course, Jeremy as leader, um, haven't gone away. And when I saw um, on the platform Zara Sultana with Jeremy um, at one point talking about uh, climate change, um, I, I, I felt really inspired. Um, so I, I, you know, there is still hope and, and there are still people there, along with ourselves as campaigners. Um, that we can bring about change. It hasn't gone away, just like socialism doesn't go away. And the, those hopes and dreams from 17 and 19 are, well, and those policies, progressive policies are needed now more than ever. So, I, you know, I, com I completely agree with you. Um, um, I, with regard to Red Pepper um, and your co-editor, as Tom, Tom has said, it, it's a big challenge, isn't it, for left publications to to kind of get the message out there I mean I don't know what the circulation is for Red Pepper but um, I, I know that left-wing media um, platforms um, you know groups like uh, Navarra Media, Byland Times, there's Tribune, uh, Canary, there's all there's lots of dip socialists, telly, uh, new ones are emerging all the time um, but what, what are your thoughts on on the future for the left um, in terms of getting that political messaging out when we've got such control from Murdoch um, and MSM, um, you know, that that sometimes it almost seems like they just have, they're all controlling. And what, what can we do in terms of left publications and how, how do you see that going? 
Well, I think in some ways, um, with the defeat of um, Jeremy and the left in Parliament, which in a way is you could say is one form of representation, then the, the, the left media, even more important, because that's another form of representation. It's a different form, obviously, because it's, it's, um, it's media rather than political institutions. But I think it's, it's really important. And I think it means that we've got the left ought to be putting a lot of energy and resources into, into maintaining them and strengthening them. And they need to be doing more to strengthen the left and give a platform to, to campaigns and ideas that otherwise are not going to get, you know, any sort of visibility. So, I mean, I think that we've, the, me, the left media got to work more together. Um, I know, I think Jeremy's Peace and um, Justice Project is helping in this way. Mm. I know that they're, they're, they're very much intending to, at any rate. So I think the more we can done, do to collaborate, the more um, socialists can do to, to, you know, help fund us. I mean, maybe, you know, reduce their subscription to the Labour Party um, or divert any banker's order from, to the Labour Party to, to the left media um, would, be, would be gratefully received because we, we are, all of us, very under-resourced. I mean, maybe the new statesman has got some big funder, but we don't. We just depend on on subscriptions and sometimes crowdfunding. We don't have any resources, although some of us, I mean, I put in a bit of the money that I inherited from my father, um, another link, uh, into Red Pepper at the beginning. Um, and I'm sure other people have done the same um, from sort of ill-gotten gains. Uh, and, um, it, but we don't have anybody, you know, who's doing that on a lasting basis. Uh, and um, so every, and we're not alone in that. I'm sure Tribune and, and, and others also need those resources, Navara Media. And so, um, so I think we've got to treat the different sort of aspects of the left media as part of a sort of left media infrastructure, which is crucial to supporting and sustaining struggles and ideas that are otherwise going to be swept aside. So I hope very much the unions will help there too. I hope Sharon Graham at, at, Graham at Unite, whose who's kind of pragmatism towards the Labour Party is very healthy. I hope she'll be positively pragmatic towards the left media, or not she, but her members. So um, I think that they're very, very important at the moment. And, and I'm pleased to say that in the case of Red Pepper, and I'm sure others, particularly Navara, a lot of young people are really putting their energies into this. I mean, I'm really the sort of granny of Red Pepper. Everybody else is like in their 20s and 30s. They're all taking, they're taking equal, if not greater, uh, responsibility for the production of Red Pepper. Well, that, that's good, though, isn't it, to nurture the, the, the future generations? I mean, when, when I saw the team in, uh, in Brighton, I, I could see that, that younger generation coming, coming through. Um, same with Novara Media and some on Socialist Telly. Yeah. Um, it's good to see. And I, th I think, you know, I'm born optimist. And I, I kind of think that um, certainly our sons who are in the 30s, 
never get a hard copy of a newspaper. You know, everything's online, everything, everything's streamed, YouTube, um, and that's the future. And I suppose that's what the left has got to do. We've got to galvanise and come together and and engage with the younger generation who are crying out, you know, this political vacuum we've got at the moment. Uh, they are crying out for... Uh, for for that lead on the you know on the socialist with the socialist movement and I think that the uh, the media um, and publications out there are going to be so important for that younger generation. Um, so, but I'm I'm really pleased that hopefully Red Pepper's doing well. Yeah, no, it's it's steadily you know it's steadily increasing its reach. But I do think I do think I don't know I find that. That young people sometimes do like to have hard copy. I mean, we we are both, but but a lot of young people really like the hard copy. I mean, I think it's in our case and 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 other and Trib, uh, Tribune's case, it's very well designed. It's nice to have in your hands. Yes. You know, I mean, I'm sure young people are just. Like, I suppose I was oh. thinking more of the Daily Guardian. You know, I was thinking yeah. when, when you get Tribune or Red Pepper, it's a really quality. It's like a book. You know, it's 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 something that you want to hold and you want to turn the pages. Whereas with, I'm thinking more of a, the daily yeah. newspaper coming through the door. Youngsters yeah. don't tend to do that in the same way, do they? No, no, no. That's true. No, I agree. But I think doing. I mean, like encourage your sons to read your essay as it's printed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make sure. I do subscribe. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I go back to it? I, I, I do bang on about this quite a lot, Hilary, so forgive me if you find, uh, uh, forgive me, Thelma, if you find it boring. I, I know you don't, actually, because I think uh, tomorrow night never you know, we've got an important meeting uh, about this very thing. Hilary, do you think, because of what happened with Jeremy and 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 so many people getting mobilised politically around that, and then it coming to pieces like it did, I'm kind of still caught up on this whole idea that we need to put that movement back together and and get it mobilised as one unit if we are going to get any change. I mean, it terrified the establishment, uh, uh, and um, which is obvious by the response. And, and as you say, we're all still here. What we are struggling with is putting it back together. And I know Thelma's working really hard on this. And hats off to you're an inspiration on that, Thelma. Uh, Hillary, what do you think? Yeah. I, am I am I living in delusion, thinking that we that we can somehow do this? Well, I mean, I, honestly, I don't really have an answer here. But I I think we should be wary of having one model of how we do it. I mean, I think that, um, it, you know, the, the tendency for us older generation is to think in terms of unified movements in the sense of like everybody being in the same room in some sense. Whereas I think that the the new generation, partly influenced by the um, internet and not just the social media, but actually the, the forms of organisation that, that, that go along with the internet and that are kind of almost, you know, evoked by the internet, which is like networking and distributed, decentralised forms of organisation mean that we can be coordinated, but we can remain autonomous. So it's like autonomy, but connectedness. So I think if we can have that kind of a coming together, that's very different. It's not like a left model of the Labour Party. It's um, 
it's a different sort of model of network. Some people would call it networked politics, but that's a bit a bit apolitical. We've got to talk about, I mean, distributed socialism or decentralised socialism. Uh, and so I think we've got to think like that. So that's why I don't think we should be in a hurry to corral people. It's a matter of connecting people, which is what something like your blog does, and which is why the me- the left media are so important because they connect people without sort of corralling them and without demanding a party card or a, a particular sort of allegiance. Sorry, I was just going to say that I agree with you, um, Hilary, with that, um, about people, especially the youngsters, are moving away from this party politics. And I quite like that term you use there, decentralised socialism. I, th- I think that's that's a good uh, terminology to consider um, really, and uh, as Tom said, I'm, I am trying to kind of bring people together uh, from the new and emerging uh, radical left parties and campaign groups, indeed, and um, to have the conversations. And and no, we're not all the same. Or and your point is, do we have to be all the same? Um, if there's that core purpose, but different approaches to to delivering it so as long as the conversations are, are, are to be had and and some kind of consensus can be reached about about how we bring about positive and progressive change i think that's what's important sorry tom i'll hand over to you because i know no, we're running okay. out of time now um, yeah i uh, just what what one more quick thing from me and uh do you see um models around the world of what's happened in other countries where the left some countries have had uh, big successes on the left, uh, but it's very difficult to compare to UK because the UK establishment is so entrenched and so strong and has been for uh, centuries uh, or almost forever. It, it's very, it puts our country in a kind of unique situation, do you think? Or do you see other parallels? I don't see... Easy parallels. I guess the US is an interesting case where, okay, it's not, the establishment hasn't ruled for so long, but it's obviously very powerful as an imperial power. And yet Bernie Sanders, you know, did so well and is still, you know, a force to be reckoned with. I mean, Biden hasn't been able to ditch him. Maybe he hasn't wanted to. And and so that's a bit of an encouragement. Um, but I think that um, it, it points to the importance of organising at the base of society where the establishment capital, you know, depends on us, depends on us as workers, consumers, voters. And if we can be organised, you know, rebuild our organisation in the workplace, in the community, I think that's going to be really kind of crucial. So, you know, in a way... You could say one of the weaknesses of, of the Corbyn project was that not through no fault of Jeremy's himself, but through the point of history at which that movement arose, it didn't it wasn't based on a very strong, you know, um, trade union movement or strong material forces of socialism. I mean it was it was coming after a defeat, you know, the defeat of the unions, the defeat of local government. So we've got to rebuild that material presence of socialism, you know, inevitably in a decentralised way. But it means like seeing what we can do with some combination of what's left of the unions, what's left of local government, 
um, and the this the energy of these new social movements, new young activists, to create little sort of hubs of practical socialism. I mean, building also on on the kind of day to day socialism that that developed during the pandemic, which showed that you know you can build solidarity in neighbourhoods. Um, and that there's still the remnants of that that could be built on. So I think you know the examples of of the of particularly the continent Podemos in in Spain, the Pirate Party in Germany. I don't think any of them really provide a an adequate Syriza in Greece. They don't provide a adequate model. I mean, they haven't in the end even been very successful in their own countries because they've come up against. Well, the pressures of an established political order, maybe not as entrenched as Britain and not with, I mean, you could say first past the post is an electoral system, you know, designed and then reproduced to defend the the existing parliamentary elite. And those countries don't have that disproportionate electoral system. But nevertheless, even though they were able to break through electorally, they weren't able to break through institutionally. So they were they were weakened by being involved in electoral politics, in a sense. I mean, they needn't have been, but they 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 did allow themselves to be devalue and deprioritize their grassroots base. I mean, I think there have been breakthroughs locally, like in Barcelona, you know, but that's where an, a sort of independent local alliance you know, made an electoral victory, which was then followed up by continued social struggle. So I think the local level, but not in isolation, I think is very important. Yeah, fascinating stuff. We could talk for a lot longer, couldn't we? <laughs> As always. Oh, it's great listening to you, Hilary. Yeah, really interesting. Well, let's carry on the discussion somewhere. Well, we need to, don't we? I mean, that when 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 we started the podcast, we just wanted to provide a platform to have these very conversations, really, and uh, it's worked quite well, and people do like yeah. it. Um, but what yeah. we have, yeah, you know, we're still very new to this. Um, we, this is episode twenty, and I suppose in, in the great scheme of things, we're still real beginners. But it's it's absolutely wonderful talking through these things, especially with. People, I, I haven't been involved in politics that much in my life, really. But when you, when I talk to people that have really gone into it, and and I know, you know, I'm talking to people that really know stuff here. Thank you so much, Hilary, for for agreeing to come on the podcast, and hopefully you'll come back on at some point. Um, it's been a, it's been a joy talking with you, um, and I just well, like to... I've really enjoyed talking to you, and we'll definitely like to come back and definitely. Have Thelma back in Red Pepper, writing for Red uh, Pepper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd love definitely. to. I'd love to. We're actually thinking, Hilary, of having a Christmas special and getting Melissa back on. So if you're available then, that would be great to have a few of you uh, on at yeah, the same no, that'd time. Be brilliant. That'd be lovely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. we could do it in person. Okay. Maybe we could all come up to Huddersfield. <laughs> that, oh, that, that would be, be even so better. Good, that? <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> I'm, you'll I'm you'll not to get top up north. <laughs> Will we get you up north, Tom? <laughs> well, well, I don't know. Couldn't you come down south? <laughs> I think there's more, um, there's more pull towards the north. But I, I'd really definitely. recommend it, Tom. I think you should, you should definitely just... It's not a long journey from Devon because we could meet in Leeds or somewhere on the west, east, 
where are you on the west coast? I'll tell you. I'll so, tell you what I'd have to do. I'd have to combine it with Argyle playing away up there somewhere, and I could take in <laughs> football match as well. That would yeah. justify the train travel. Um, anyway, Hillary uh, and, and Thelma, I'm, I'm going to round it up now because we've gone well over our time. It's been absolutely brilliant as usual. And uh, uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe uh, and make sure that you'll get every episode and uh, and tell your friends. Um, it's it's been such fun doing it, and I hope you really enjoyed listening to it. And uh, I'll pass you over to Thelma now to say your goodbyes. Oh, thanks, Tom. It's been great talking to you, and thanks very much, Hilary, for joining us. It's, uh, it's you've been inspirational, really. I've I've learned an awful lot today, and I'll leave you with the words of Bertolt Brecht: "No one can be good for long if goodness is not in demand." Solidarity. Yes, solidarity from me too.